Upper acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and the continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders past and present. Welcome to Taking Care, a podcast of APRA and the National Boards. I'm Tash Miles, and today we're speaking about an issue that affects all of us as citizens of the world, though it certainly affects some communities more than others. It's climate change that's on our agenda and how our changing climate is affecting access to safe healthcare and ultimately our health and health outcomes. It's a big topic. Fortunately, I have some big thinkers with relevant lived experience here to discuss this. Dr. Ying Gu is an obstetrician in Melbourne and volunteer with Doctors for the Environment with an interest in issues for sustainable healthcare. Dr. Simon Quilty is a specialist physician based in the remote Northern Territory and is particularly interested in the link between environmental heat and well-being there. Also, you might be able to tell from some of the background noise that he is ducked away from work to dial in to be with us. And finally, Professor Sharon Friel is Professor of Health Equity and Director of the Menzies Centre for Health Governance at the School of Regulation and Global Governance at ANU. Welcome to our podcast. And I've started off an introduction, but I'm hoping that you could talk more about your motivations for speaking with us about climate change and healthcare. Let's start with you, Ying. Sure. Thanks, Tash, for having me on the podcast. Um, as you said, I'm an obstetrician, um, gynecologist. I self-specialise in ultrasound at the Royal Women's Hospital and Mercy Hospital for Women in Melbourne. I joined Doctors for the Environment Australia, a non-for-profit advocacy group made up of doctors and medical students following the Black Summer bushfires in 2019 to 20. I saw how the thick smoke exacerbated my niece's asthma and kept the children from playing outside. This is when I looked into the health impacts of climate change. And as a doctor and parent, I feel that it's very much part of my duty to advocate for science-based climate action to limit global warming for the sake of our health and our children. Thank you. And, and Sharon, could you do the same? Could you introduce yourself in the context of this discussion about climate change and healthcare? Sharon Frill, a Professor of Health Equity at the Australian National University. And for years, I've been researching around inequalities in health and trying to advocate for, for action on the underlying social inequities that contribute uh, to poor health outcomes and the unequal distribution of that. And of course, climate change, we're seeing climate change exacerbating those inequalities. You know, it's widening uh, social inequality, which is then feeding through to widening uh, health inequities. And so I'm just really, uh, really concerned that unless we do something uh, about climate change, we will see even worse uh, health inequities here in Australia and globally. And Simon, could you talk a bit about where you work and how you've seen climate and climate change affect the communities who you work with? I have lived and worked in remote NT for the last 20 years. And when I first moved to Darwin, I uh, realised that there was a very substantial problem on our hands. And indeed, the Northern Territory Government recognised that as well in their 2004 report on climate change. A more recent report done in 2021 by the Northern Territory Government, once again commissioned by CSIRO, uh, deemed that uh, the 2004 report was a substantial underestimate of the new extreme heats. And so in 2004, when I moved to Darwin, I just presumed the adults in the room would stand up. There was some talk about uh, mitigating 
carbon emissions from healthcare uh, in 2005 in the Northern Territory and the Northern Territory government as a sector pledged to reduce their energy consumption in their buildings by 10% by 2011. Uh, in 2016, there was some infrastructure that was built that was supposed to substantially reduce the carbon emissions of Alice Springs Hospital. And in 2021, Natasha Files signed, the, the, the then health minister and now chief minister of the Northern Territory signed every single Northern Territory health institution up to the Global Green Healthy Hospitals. However, the adults never stood up, and I would say they still haven't stood up in the Northern Territory. Uh, to date, the, the Northern Territory signature to Global Green Healthy Hospitals has amounted to nothing. There is still not a single solar panel on a single hospital. And I guess more broadly speaking, uh, than just my own personal profession is obviously these remote communities, which I know very well. So I started the service in Catherine Hospital, the specialist service in Catherine, Ho Catherine Hospital in 2012, one of the hottest towns in Australia. Uh, on average, Catherine has six days a year above 40 degrees Celsius, and in 2019-20, they had uh, 56 days above 40 degrees Celsius and they had incredible stretches of profound heat that had never been experienced before. Trees died, trees died from heat all along the Catherine River. The, the, there was a collapse of the uh, bush apple tree, which is a substantial food source for First Nations people. Uh, the entire population along the river collapsed and uh, birds were falling from the trees. And so you can imagine, it doesn't take much to imagine that people who live in tin sheds that are not insulated and don't have power or water running to them are incredibly vulnerable. We're reaching threshold temperatures in the north of Australia where if people can't um, shelter from these extreme conditions then they will essentially cook and uh, uh, it's extremely concerning. Uh, the, the poorer people are, the less resources they have to, to shelter from this extreme new heat. Mm, thank you Simon, that's a extremely vivid picture you paint of a really concerning reality. And Sharon, for you, could you give some examples of the effects you've seen of climate change on individuals, but maybe also on society more broadly? Yeah, it's, you know, there are many, many tentacles from climate change into people's lives and ultimately our health and it affects us both our physical and our mental health. So of course the the immediate experience that people will remember of the, the fires uh, and the floods that are ongoing at the moment in parts of the country, uh, immediately affecting uh, people's lives. You know, it's some, for some, it's a matter of life or death. It's that stark. Uh, and then, of course, the, the heat stress that comes from the increasing temperatures uh, the erosion of land that's pulling down people's homes and structures, the incredible stress from that. So not just the physical risks uh, to people's health and well-being, uh, but the, the mental, uh, the stress, the immediate and the accumulative, uh, accumulating stress uh, that's associated with that. And we will see, we already are seeing, but we're going to see a very long tail, I think, of mental health problems uh, associated uh, with climate change. And then the way it's affecting, you know, I mentioned how my real concern of 
the widening of social inequities uh, within Australia and what that means uh, related to the health inequities. So if you think of you know, people uh, in the floods, people in the, the Lismore, um, the, the caravan parks who were so terribly, terribly affected uh, by the floods and many of those people really having insurance for their dwellings uh, is a stretch let alone they've been able to move to somewhere else or you know, move to somewhere safer afterwards. Whereas, of course, more affluent uh, households, people in households are absolutely able to do that, you know, just have the greater financial um, capacity to do that. That's just one example of how I think we start to see a cleavage in the already existing social fault lines here in Australia. Yeah, it's not just about those big singular weather events. It's about the day-to-day -day impacts that you see in the tentacles of climate change reaching everywhere, reaching all facets. Simon, back to you, and you have spoken a lot about heat and uh, and its effect on the communities who you work with. What do you see as the big ticket items that really affect health outcomes in the communities you work with? Housing. If Australia is serious about closing the health and social gaps that exist in Indigenous Northern Territory, then the only thing that needs to be looked at is housing. And it's not just more houses, it's way better quality houses. So um, probably 70% of all remote housing stock. There's about 10,000 remote houses in the Northern Territory. And then for people living, Indigenous people living in town, many of them live in town camps, which are extreme poverty. But of the 10,000 remote houses, uh, probably 70% of them are old infrastructure. This connects with some of the more recent research that I've had published last year in Nature Energy, which demonstrated that remote Indigenous houses have the highest rates of energy insecurity in the world. So energy insecurity as opposed to energy poverty means that you're not sure how long your power will stay on. What we found in our research for remote Indigenous houses is that they disconnect up to every fourth day for on average 10 hours at a time. And this is because they purchase power in a pre-purchase arrangement. So they have meters that they have to credit up. It's a response to incredible poverty. Aboriginal people in communities like Arjumanu have an average wage, weekly wage of $200 per week. Uh, they pay up to, in the current environment, up to $5 a litre for fuel. They pay up to $7 for a litre for uh, milk. And they pay significant amounts to rent these incredibly poor houses. And so a solution to that is to prepay your power. And then you can choose between energy poverty or food poverty. And what happens is in the hottest months of the year, as the hot weather extends more and more, people run out of electricity increasingly and they lose any capacity to even have a refrigerator. A lot of this is non-biomedical. In fact, almost all of it is non-biomedical. There's not enough houses. They're poorly constructed. Uh, they are poorly designed. Uh, they have terrible thermal ratings. The more energy efficient your house is, the safer it is in very hot weather and the less electricity you have to pay to keep it cool. 
Uh, and so there's all of these structural barriers around housing that are, that are absolutely obscene and need to be urgently addressed because we're only one El Nino summer away from catastrophic heat where people really simply can't, can't escape. And, and how is climate change affecting the communities that you work with accessing healthcare? There's different kinds of healthcare. There's Western biomedical healthcare. And what we know is that when the weather's hotter, we have increased admissions to hospital. And I've also got some research that demonstrates that increasingly hot weather means increasing retrieval services. In the Northern Territory, uh, in a place like Alice Springs, we only have three fixed wing aircraft for all of our retrieval needs, covering an area of well over a million square kilometres. Uh, and about 40 remote communities. And so those planes are really precious. And if you have an increased burden on that, then you've lost, then you've got reduced access to, to acute care. Um, but even more fundamentally, uh, you can imagine that if people, people's power is turning off every fourth day on average for 10 hours, people just don't buy fridges. And you prescribe medications which are 10% temperature sensitive. Where do you store them when you get home in summer? So, for instance, insulin, um, if you don't have a fridge, you can't store it when, when the inside of your house gets well above 40 degrees Celsius day after day after day. And one of the other things that I think is really interesting as a society, we, we presume that the thermal stability of our medications is a granted. And, and when people come to work in very hot parts of the Northern Territory, they they don't appreciate that people can't shield their medications from very hot weather. But the First Nations people that I know and love and work with are a lot less concerned about their medications than they are about their food. If you can't store your medications, you can't store your food. So these are extraordinarily uh, fundamental inequities that, that drastically need to be addressed, but they need to be addressed in terms of what remote communities see as the most important. and. I think most people would say that the most important thing isn't medications, it's food and water security and being able to shelter from extreme heat. Mm, so I guess that sometimes patient-centred care can mean not prioritising their health care, but caring for them in the, way that, the ways that they need more. Ying, can we go to you and talk about how you see climate change affect the patients and communities that you work with in a quite a different context. Yeah, sure. Um, before I go into that, I just want to add, uh, it's really important to highlight that food security and uh, nutrition are all tied up with um, worsening climate change and its impacts on health. So in regards to the question, how is affecting my patients? Well, I'm very concerned for my patients who are women that span different stages of life. Uh, women uh, will be one of the more vulnerable groups affected by climate change. And one of those is the gender inequalities, the social and family responsibilities that women have. Um, currently, there's strong epidemiological evidence that support that climate change reduces fertility and has adverse pregnancy outcomes such as reduced fertility, um, life birth rates, and also um, links with increased uh, preterm birth and low birth weight. And one example of how that's mediated in terms of preterm birth is um, a pollutant um, that's very fine part, particular matter that's less than 2.5 micrometer. That is so fine. It can be inhaled into the lungs and enter the bloodstream where it causes inflammatory uh, stress in the body. 
Um, and this comes from wood smoke from wildfires. Um, and during the Black Summer bushfires, the eastern states reached like levels of five to seven times more than what is classified as poor air quality. And it has been shown that exposure to this pollutant has been estimated to account for up to 18% of the global preterm birth rate. And we know that preterm birth have significant health impacts beyond the newborn period. Also, I'm concerned about the global rising temperatures, which will see increased distrib distribution of vectors like mosquitoes that carry infections. And a recent report um, that showed the Zika virus transmission temperatures that will favour Zika virus spread will endanger a further 1.3 billion people. And we know Zika virus causes severe microcephaly, um, among other severe birth uh, defects. I think the other impacts that we will see um, is that um, populations will become uh, displaced, as we saw locally with the floods and, and in Europe with the evacuations from the fires, is that women will be at high risk of um, uh, gender-based violence, um, exploitation, and consequent mental trauma. Um, in areas where they're already low resource, um, res low resources and poor access, such as regional areas, extreme weather events will further add to the access barriers to healthcare and reproductive care. So I'm very concerned about how climate change will affect women's health. Do you, do you talk with your patients about that connection? Yeah, I do. Um, when there is time, um, and always time, um, you know, the clinic setting is limited, I do try to bring this up, um, in particular, you know, relating to the obstetric outcomes um, and the things that women could do in terms of their own decision making. Um, yeah, I do take that opportunity as part of health promotion. That's great. Sharon, do you have anything to add in terms of, for want of a better phrase, hot ticket items when it comes to climate change affecting the healthcare system? Building, building from what Ying was sort of reminding us of, thinking about the experiences kind of locally, nationally, can't be done uh, separate to the global connectedness uh, in, in which we're all living. And yeah, I do think that the so both as kind of a positive and a negative of uh, the the global pandemic at the moment has made many in the public as well as uh, in sort of policy and, and politics much much more aware of that interconnectedness we've just seen the australian state of the environment report come out finally which is just alarming uh, in lots of different ways. I mean, climate change is threatening every ecosystem that we have here in Australia. Uh, so it's not a particular hot ticket item, but it's just the absolute urgency for action or else the sorts of issues we have been speaking about are just going to ramp right up. Have you seen any strategies that you think um, you know, if they got legs, they might work to kind of address some of those structural changes? We've got to do something about adaptation right now. And at the same time, we have to address the structural drivers of ongoing climate change. It's not an either or, we need both. And I would argue that good climate adaptation policy is good social planning economic policy. So how do we address some of the 
uh, inequities that we're seeing in the ability to adapt and respond to the existing climate change that we have right now. Think about something like uh, the income, the uh, income support levels that we saw people in when that was amended to, to enable people to uh, live during the pandemic. We saw that that uh, empowered communities and that's the sort of levels that people need ongoing so a decent and living wage and a, a decent living uh, level of income support to me is actually really good climate adaptation policy for example so yeah really important uh, and exciting development that's happening here in the ACT uh, in Canberra is uh, the the ACT government has introduced uh, a new policy to uh, really make a big difference to emissions. And so by 2035, car dealers uh, won't be able to sell any internal cars with internal combustion. So a major uh, policy, new policy direction uh, for the ACT. So that, along with a number of incentives to uh, help access to electric vehicles, uh, I think is going to really help shift the dial, uh, which is very positive. And so that goes some of the way to, you know, from a mitigation perspective. But I would argue we have to see a much bigger structural intervention because it becomes reliant on the individuals, you know, it's go out there and drive a, a car that's, um, you know, based on renewables, based on uh, electricity, or it's you know, turn off the lights and, you know, or use solar panels, all of which are very important and useful individual level interventions. But we still haven't seen the level of structural intervention from a mitigation perspective that basically stops the use, uh, the production and consumption of fossil fuels. There's some rumblings. I am quite encouraged to hear the uh, the discussion that's going on about you know whether there will or won't be legislation where uh, any new proposed fossil fuel project has to go through an environmental assessment. Heaven forbid, why on earth wasn't that happening already? Um, so that goes some of the way, but actually just veto any introduction of those sorts of projects would be ultimately, I think, what we're going to have to do in terms of the drastic change that we need to prevent the ecosystem collapse that will happen based on the State of the Environment report. Simon, could you talk to us about innovations and workarounds that you've seen? Well, I'm so enamoured uh, and... Uh, enthralled by uh, First Nations people's ingenuity in the circumstances that they have. Climate change is obviously affecting the ecosystem and, and putting extreme pressure on a lot of ecosystems, which is a threat in itself. But I have um, seen some significant issues of advocacy and indeed um, Norman Frank Trabula, who is a, a, a very good friend and mentor of mine, uh, recently achieved uh, solar panels on his rooftop and it's the first uh, remote Indigenous house to have solar panels on it and that has completely alleviated his energy poverty. Uh, he, he was disconnecting from power probably once every two weeks. He's a relatively well-to-do Warramonga man who lives in a town camp in Tennant Creek 
uh, and since uh, he received a solar feed-in tariff, thanks to the amazing work of Original Power, uh, a First Nations uh, renewable energy organisation, um, he hasn't disconnected from power and he's not concerned about that anymore as a, as a threat to his family's well-being. So there are innovations and there's lots of great work and lots of great people really pushing the agenda, but it is all completely without the support of either federal or state um, governments. There has been no subsidies. Indeed, the remote houses that are currently being constructed at $850,000 a piece, a three bedroom, besser brick, poorly designed, no eaves on walls, no solar panels on roofs, really poorly constructed dwellings that even when they're brand new, uh, anyone in a mainstream suburb of Sydney or Melbourne would be reluctant to rent. They, have, they don't have nearly enough windows. Uh, they, the ones in the north of Australia are definitely not air conditioned. Um, and so there is no innovation and it feels like there's a complete head in the sand from the Northern Territory Government in terms of their needs to be much more, uh, much cleverer in the way that they start addressing these inequities. Mm, the Australian healthcare system has a lot of opportunity to learn, I guess. So it's difficult to talk about climate change and really specifically talk about healthcare because it, as you, as everybody has said, it, it touches everything and then that flows down to healthcare. But I'm wondering whether we could go back in and talk about the hospital setting and whether you've seen specific uh, work workarounds or improvements to really respond to the climate crisis. Yeah, so I think uh, within the hospital system, I work in both um, public and private hospitals, um, and there are uh, variations in uh, the sustainability initiatives and and levels of um, how much that is embedded into the operations. So I think um, there there are progress in wanting to reduce the. Um, health services um, emissions, um, but the, there's a lot of variability and measuring um, emissions is still difficult and not standardised. Um, there are definitely good uh, news stories, though, in that um, the Mercy Hospital for Women have released their uh, Caring for People and Planet Sustainability Strategy, uh, where they work towards achieving net zero emissions by 2030 for Mercy Health. Um, and the Royal Women's are also in the process of developing a similar strategy. Um, so I think there is growing acknowledgement of the contribution of the healthcare sector to global emissions. And one of the Doctors for the Environment members, Anisidus Intensivist, uh, Professor Forbes McGain, published that Australia's um, healthcare sector's footprint, carbon footprint, is estimated to be about 7% of the national total greenhouse gas emissions, of which public and private hospitals and the uh, pharmaceutical supply chain make up about two thirds. Uh, so it's very significant. Um, and there's now also increasing advocacy from medical professionals um, to act on climate to protect health. Uh, for example, last year, more than 200 international medical journals released a joint editorial calling for emergency action to limit global temperature increase, restore biodiversity and protect health. 
And last year, the Amer uh, Australian Medical Association, along with Doctors for the Environment and the Australian um, Nursing and Midwife um, Federation, released a joint statement that uh, healthcare sector emissions need to be reduced uh, with a target of 80% reduction by 2030, and thereby advocating for the health sector to be part of the solution rather than contributing to the problem. Simon. We need to be leaders. We need to mitigate our carbon footprints. There is not a single solar panel on a single hospital in the Northern Territory, and they have done nothing to, uh, to, mitig to mitigate their footprint. There needs to be some really clever adaptation plans because most of the Northern Territory experiences very extreme heat for prolonged periods of, of the year, and we need to get acting very quickly because it's, it's going to be very dangerous in the next five years if people aren't afforded better housing infrastructure in which to shelter from this extreme heat. I think at a state level, um, there's good news stories um, in that um, Victoria uh, public hospitals will be powered by renewable energy, 100% renewable energy by 2025, um, and that the new Melton Hospital will be all electric with no gas infrastructure, which is amazing. And on a national level, uh, we can look towards um, England's National Health Service. And while every health service has its challenges and issues, uh, they do lead the way in terms of sustainability in that they have a national sustainable healthcare unit and they're able to successfully reduce um, their emissions uh, by 26% uh, since 1990, despite the population of England growing in that period. And the financial savings they have uh, estimated associated with the initiatives they put in place for energy and waste and water improvements have saved the NHS 90 million pounds per year. So that's Australian dollars, 168 million per year. Can you imagine what we can do with that money if we were to reinvest that in health prevention and therefore reduce the burden of disease and strain on our health services? And one of the very interesting policies they have uh, announced in NHS is they've used their purchasing power to tell their suppliers that if they do not uh, innovate and be part of the solution by um, becoming carbon neutral themselves, they will not have the NHS as a customer. So that's a huge incentive to really drive that systemic change we, de we desperately need. Um, and so Australia really needs to emulate this and have its own national sustainable healthcare unit. And what that does is uh, enable a national coordinating effort to work with states, general practice and not-for-profit organisations and industry so that we could have a consistent measurement of health sector emissions, implement what's best practice and evidence-based approaches so that we could collaborate and effectively achieve net zero uh, carbon emissions for the health sector and provide the high value care for our patients and save financially as well. That's what we need. That was inspirational. <laughs> Thank you. Sharon, I'll go to you and ask, like, looking to the future, what do you think that signs would be that we, that change is happening, that meaningful change is happening? What would, what would you like, uh, what are the markers of, positive change? Everything that Ying just described gets implemented in Australia. Um, and that it, you know, I would love to see that sort of uh, model taken across the different government departments. You know, we just don't, we just don't have that as a mission 
if for no other reason, just listen to this, the savings that Ying was describing from, uh, from the UK. But it's, it can't just be about the, the savings. This isn't an efficiency argument. This is about you know, actually preventing ecosystem collapse. You know, what I would love health practitioners to be doing is to collectively advocate for this type of action. Advocate for what needs to happen within healthcare. Advocate for action into these other policy domains. I mean, everything that I've spoken about sort of sits outside of healthcare, and it's not an either or; it's all of it. Um, but health practitioners are, you know, they're people who care about health, and so being able to help guide other sectors uh, to address these sorts of climate, health and equity uh, concerns. And Ying, what do you hope for the future? I do hope that we can see broader community engagement within the medical profession and, and outside of them, you know, in the general community, because we really need to um, engage everyone in our society, because ultimately health affects all of us, whether we are young or old, male or female. Um, and the most effective way to prevent further health deterioration is to um, limit a global uh, temperature increase to within 1.5. And the critical time to act is in this decade. And so we really need to empower everyone that they have the power to make the decisions after being informed, uh, take those actions and demand businesses and governments to apply a climate care lens to their policies and operations. And finally, Simon, what do you see as markers or priorities for a future for safer healthcare in response to climate change? Um, I, might, I might turn it on, turn that question on, on its head if you don't mind. Um, I think that the really fascinating thing with the people that I work with is that they have uh, extraordinary and ancient history. They don't record it in writing. Uh, it's all verbal and it's all through song lines and it's ancient. It's tens of thousands of years old sometimes. Uh, there's many First Nations people that I know who can recall the hunting habits of thylacines, even though they disappeared from the landscape 5,000 years ago in the Northern Territory. There's, uh, there's um, ancestral stories about... Um, about meteorites hitting the landscape and that that, that would have happened about 15,000 years ago. First Nations uh, cultures have been shaped by climate change in the past and maybe as a society Australia would be well placed to start talking to First Nations people about how to live within an ecosystem rather than battling against it. Mm. Wow, we've covered a lot of ground in our time together today so thank you and I want to really call out the generosity of our guests today for walking us through the complexities of the current and likely future climate change impacts on health and well-being and I'm particularly grateful for bringing that balance to us of responsibility because there are things we all can and need to do with hope that we can find a way through this challenge that we face together. And I'm sure our listeners will join me in thanking you, Ying, Simon and Sharon, for your time today. Pleasure. Thanks for having this podcast. Yeah, thank you. It's been a, a real pleasure.
And thank you for listening to Taking Care. Please do subscribe, recommend our podcast. Uh, you can tell us what you think or suggest ideas for future episodes by emailing us at communications at Until next time, take care.